Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Well, if you listened to last week's episode, you'll have heard Sam Coates predicting the coming storm, and it arrived right on cue. Nicola Sturgeon's demand for a second Scottish independence referendum caught Downing Street on the hop, leading Theresa May scrambling to insist she never planned to trigger Article 50 this week. It tells you something that the Brexit bill clear in the Commons is already one of the least interesting things to have happened this week. Joining me to make sense of it all and hopefully help you understand what's really going on are Emma Tucker, Deputy Editor for The Times, and Ian Martin, a Times columnist who was born in Scotland and backed Brexit, so we can blame him for everything. Uh, we'll also be joined on the line from Edinburgh by Times Scottish political editor Lindsay McIntosh and from Brussels by Bruno Waterfield. First, this week's podcast is dedicated to James from Tooting, who bafflingly claims in a review on iTunes that I'm like a canary down the Westminster coal mine. He goes on to say that each week we try to spot the black swans flying in over the horizon before they deposit their business on Britain's careworn political elite. Well, James, the skies have been full in the last few months. If you want to share your extended political metaphors, head to iTunes and post a review and you'll be helping us to climb the charts too. Down to business, Ian and Emma, welcome. I wrote in the Red Box email that referendums are like buses. You wait for ages for one and then Nicola Sturgeon comes around the corner and runs you over. Um, how do we think Theresa May's feeling after this head-on collision with the First Minister? Let's start with you, Ian. I think she's probably feeling pretty bruised, actually, in that uh, it's not really how this week was supposed to pan out. Uh, and it's a pretty smart piece of politics on a superficial level. Uh, Sturgeon is a is a serious player and she rather than waiting until her big party conference speech which is coming up um, later this week she's decided to go early on the day that parliament was focusing on other things and has changed the story very smart to what extent is the caricature of oh she's a brilliant politician she's very smart does that disguise the fact that she'd got herself quite boxed in on the issue of calling a second referendum yeah she had i mean she she got herself into this situation that from the moment that the referendum was called, the Nats started ramping up the rhetoric and started, yeah, as you say, boxing boxing themselves in. But even that being said, someone like me who wants the union to survive can admire her strategic dexterity and or tactical dexterity this week. I and mean, if there's one thing we know about Theresa May, she's not a she, she doesn't uh, have oodles of tactical dexterity. She likes to be someone who plans things long term, takes her time. This sort of thinking on her feet, quick reaction stuff isn't what she's best at. Well, I agree with what Ian uh, said. I, I think there's, you know, she's been caught on the hop by this. And I think in some ways, this and what happened last week with the budget are arguably showing some of her flaws, particularly her lack of dexterity. Um, you know, it, 
it turns out that uh, Nicola Sturgeon only found out about her plan to pull Britain out of the customs union in the single market when she stood up to make her Lancaster House speech. She could have put in a phone call to, to Nicola Sturgeon, undergone, undertaken some, some basic diplomacy. Um, and I have to say, it doesn't augur well for the negotiations with uh, on Brexit that are coming up. You hear often that Theresa May, you know, she's 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 a very solid politician in some ways. If you strike a deal with her, she'll stick to it. But then what you also hear is she's very unimaginative and very uh, and the opposite of dexterous. And I think you know the one thing she's going to need is some wily sort of smart footwork over the next couple of years. And I can't. I think I think what happened yes with with Nicola Sturgeon and what happened with the the budget don't you know might might be striking sort of sort of unease i think into the people and on um the issue of scotland there were some people who've tried to paint downing street as being a bit blasé about it all but actually the sense that i get is they are absolutely terrified by it but that's not necessarily matched by a plan of how to keep the union together yeah, I think that I think that's right. They they do care about it. Fiona Hill, who I used to work with twenty years ago on the Scotsman, uh, she certainly cares about she's it. She's now Theresa May's chief of staff. Yeah, so she's at the centre of all this. She cares a, a great deal. Uh, I don't think the case though for the for the union is completely dead and buried. I mean, it was a as I said earlier, smart tactical move. But Sturgeon still is in a tricky position here. I mean, she's asking for a referendum in late 2018, early 19. There's absolutely no way that <laughs> Theresa May is going to agree to that. That's going to be exactly that, what... That's why she's asked for it. I mean, that's the whole... That is the sort of SNP all over. Yeah, it you is. You ask for something you know you can't have to create the grievance rather than... Because she it's, doesn't really want this it referendum It is. As either. a Scottish unionist, you know, I've been living with this for my entire <laughs> life. This is what they do. Nats are going to nat. I mean, and this is, this is yet another example of it but the problem that she has is that there isn't really a demand for a referendum now in scotland if you look at the polling it's very clear people don't want it people are reasonable not stupid they might want a referendum after brexit is concluded but seem to understand that the the country the uk has rather a lot on its hands at the moment without a referendum that leaves may having to find a way to say no nicely and to say no or not yet, let's get through Brexit first. And I do think uh, the suggestion from number 10 that they are thinking about trying to get Sturgeon to commit to having to seek a mandate in the 2021 Holyrood elections and get a majority for a referendum, I, th- I think that's pie in the sky. That's just, too, that's, that's just too far away. If there is going to be a referendum, the window is going to be post-Brexit 2019-2020. So we're joined on the line now by Lindsay McIntosh, the Scottish political editor of the Times uh, in Edinburgh. So, Lindsay, just give us a sense of what the mood is like in Scotland the morning after the night before, after Nicola Sturgeon pulled her, her stunt and said that she wanted this second referendum. I think there's sort of a, a sense of grim fatigue, to be honest, from the people <laughs> that you speak to here. Um, I think obviously that is from people who voted no in 2014 and are happy with that vote and, and don't want to go through it again. But I think also quite a number of people who voted yes in 2014 are thinking either we went through it then, it was decided we don't want to do it again, or they're thinking, wait a minute, we don't want to do it again because we don't think we can win yet. Um, but either way, you know, everyone's kind of looking at the next two years and thinking, oh, my goodness, here we go again. And so from your point of view, to what extent is, is Nicola Sturgeon this sort of masterful political genius? Or is she just a prisoner of her own party and having been forced into demanding something she knows 
the time's not quite right, the circumstances aren't quite right, but she had to, having laid the ground for all of this mm-hmm. since the Brexit vote, she, she had to do it. I think I think it's a bit of both. I think um, the, the timing of making her announcement yesterday um, was pretty masterful um, in that she's got all the headlines today. And, you know, as the Times says on its front page today, Sturgeon ambushes May. Uh, it really was an ambush. Um, I think in terms of the timing overall, in terms of when she's going to hold this referendum, it's probably the best she's going to get. Um, you know, she's she's got one chance to do this herself. The last one was run by Alex Salmond. Um, Nicola Sturgeon needs a legacy and um, she wants, she wants obviously, a yes vote to be her legacy and to do it at a time when it looks like the Conservatives, still relatively unpopular in Scotland, are going to be in power for a long time at Westminster at a time when we seem to be going for a hard Brexit, which Scotland didn't vote for, and at a time when her own government's popularity is probably reached its peak and indeed it is dropping somewhat you know these are all factors that she needs to take into consideration and and probably have prompted her to act now and we've seen that the yes campaign is already up and running they've already set a target of raising a million pounds Mm -hmm. the sense is that the the no campaign is sort of non-existent to in disarray is that Uh, i think shambolic shambolic uh, would be fair um if you think back to 2014, Alison Darling, who led Better Together, um, did a pretty good job against the odds of keeping that bunch together to an extent. You know, um, that was a, a cross-party campaign which was fractured, but which got them, uh, you know, over the line in the end. Uh, this time around, it's very different. Um, there's so little appetite for a cross-party unionist campaign up here um, from, from everybody on that side, really, you know. Um, Labour and the Tories are as toxic to to each other uh, up here just now. Um, There's a sense that uh, they would like uh, a non-partisan figure to lead the campaign. You know, we speculated today somebody like J.K. Rowling. Um, I think that would be their dream, but whether or not she would want to stick her head above the parapet is is another issue. I I just wanted to ask you, uh, Mm. you know, we got the sense yesterday that Nicola Sturgeon was very felt that Theresa May had behaved in a very high-handed way towards her. What's how does Theresa May play in Scotland? I mean, she she as far as I know, she has no Scottish links whatsoever. You know, what what's her sort of standing up there? It it sort of remains to be seen. There's not the the sort of immediate sort of uh, reaction against her that there has been to some Tories. I would suggest um, she's uh, she plays differently to David Cameron in that you can't level the old Etonian charge at her. You know, David Cameron knew he was very unpopular up here, which is why he played um, quite a, a low profile role in the last referendum, certainly in the early stages. Um, with Theresa May, as she is with many things, she's been very cautious with Scotland. She came up just after a premiership um, to sort of, you know, make her presence known, but then went back down south and really hasn't intervened very much so far. And what's the uh, relationship like between her and Ruth Davidson? Ruth Davidson has always talked up, certainly from Westminster's perspective, there's a great hope for the Tory party. What's her relationship? Because she's obviously trying to balance this difficult act in Scotland of, of being on the Remain side, pro-union, but tied to a... Westminster government pursuing what's seen in Scotland as this hard Brexit. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, I think if you look at Theresa May's uh, speech to the Scottish Conservative Party conference a few weeks ago, that was clearly very informed by Ruth Davidson and Ruth Davidson's people, you know, both in terms of the domestic policy attacks that she waged. You know, Theresa May was quite aggressive on the SNP's record in education, and that's what Ruth's been pushing. And also in terms of, you know, her, um, her sort of rejection of another, of the need for another independence referendum. That's Ruth Davidson's other line of attack. Uh, so clearly, um, Ruth and her people have been feeding into Theresa May, and Theresa May described Ruth as her friend there. So it, in terms of a working relationship, it, it seems that uh, Number 10 is still listening to Ruth, um, perhaps not to the same extent that they did under David Cameron, because we know that was a very close relationship. But in terms of the hard politics, yes, you're right. It's it's very difficult uh, for Ruth, and it's going to get harder as we progress towards this hard Brexit. So who else is there in the phone? Because the Labour Party is in such a mess, and mm-hmm. uh, as you've said, the 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 polls as they are in Jeremy Corbyn is the leader. That points Scots would look at that and think, well, we're going to have the Tories in power for forever based yeah. on uh, the state of the Labour Party. So so Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, it's quite something that Jeremy Corbyn even more sort of uh, dangerous for the union than he was in the um, EU referendum where he, he sort of completely disappeared. But he, he, it's quite interesting that somebody like Jeremy Corbyn could be so potent, but for the wrong reasons. Jeremy Corbyn does pose possibly the biggest threat to the union, uh, you know, above <laughs> Nicola Sturgeon and above <laughs> Theresa May. Something else level. Yeah, yeah, like yeah exactly. Corbyn. You know, the, the, the vacuum that he has um, provided both in terms of um, an effective opposition at at Westminster, but also in terms of, you know, a Labour presence up in Scotland, um, you know, the, the, the damage that that causes can't really be underestimated. Uh, you know, one of the big differences that we have touched upon between 2014 and uh, 2017 is that back in 2014, it was, you know, you could argue that at some point Labour was going to get back into power um, at Westminster in the not too far away future. It's very, very difficult to see that again. So it's very difficult for certainly UK Labour to have a really strong, credible voice in this. And the other thing that Jeremy Corbyn does is seem to, um, you know, inflict friendly fire on uh, Kezia Dugdale, Scottish Labour leader, at, at every um, opportunity that is presented to him. And he, he even managed to declare war on the Press Association this week. Oh, yes. <laughs> comments at the weekend so when he said it would be absolutely fine if there was a referendum and they all they did is that terrible thing of writing down what he said oh don't you hate it when and that then happens. reporting it um uh, <laughs> verbatim um ian who do you look to or hope to see leading a no campaign as I, and when it comes i don't i think Lindsay's absolutely right it's not going to be it certainly won't be anything like better together and a lot of that old old new labor generation are gone and have have, have lost lost credibility. So a lot is going to fall to Ruth Davidson. Interesting thing that's happening, Labour friend of mine in the West of Scotland reported uh, that quite a significant... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Significant number of over the age of 50 Labour voters actually moving straight over to the Tories, partly because of Ruth Davidson's popularity and also her being the, the last bastion of uh, of the union. The, the, Nat, the Nats have probably taken as many Labour voters as they're going to. All the young, younger Labour voters switched over at some point in the last couple of years. So the, the possibility for the, for the Labour Party is it's, 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 hollowed, you know, it's hollowed out completely with votes drifting to the Tories because of Ruth Davidson and uh, annihilated by the annihilated by the Nats. So I think a lot will come down to Ruth Davidson. The reality that the nationalists now are the establishment in an era of insurgency. They are the establishment in Scotland. They've run Scotland for almost 10 years. So I don't think it is going to be as straightforward uh, for the nationalists as some people imagine. The other, the other problem they've got is Europe, which she acknowledged yesterday she's no longer in favour of or doesn't seem to be in favour of full membership of the EU she's worked back to some kind of compromise deal something a bit like Norway which uh, theoretically might work but then leaves Scotland separate from its largest single market which is which is England so that's not going to be an easy sell either and it also seems a little bit odd to have pursued a second referendum on the base they've been taken out of the EU but then yeah, your case isn't to go full heartily back into it. I, I, I just wanted to ask Lindsay on the question of who who leads the Better Together, such as it is campaign. Uh, to what extent some of those sort of more centrist voices, the sort of pro-European, pro-union voices, like for example J.K. Rowling, whether they will this time around switch to being put, putting their their admiration for Europe above their admiration for the union and switch to the SNP. I think there's there's two interesting groups there, bo- both the one that you identify, the, the people who voted no and then voted remain, but also the people who voted yes in 2014, but voted leave um, <laughs> last year. Um, so it's interesting to see to what extent they will cancel one another out. Mm. Um, and I think on, on the second group, the yes leavers, we've already had Jim Sillers, you know, mm. former SNP grandee, saying that actually he's, his support for uh, getting out of Europe uh, trumps his support for independence. Um, I would think that that would be unusual. I would think for most nationalists, their support for independence would trump their uh, rejection of Europe. But on the other side, the group that, that you mentioned, the the no remainers, um, I think initially following the leave vote, there will have been a, a sort of um, a knee-jerk reaction or a sort of heart reaction, which says, well, you know, you've taken my European identity away from me. Um, rest of the UK, therefore I'm going to vote yes. But I think that has perhaps died down since mm-hmm. then. There, there was a boost in the polls for yes in the wake of the EU referendum, but I think that's falling away now. Um, and I think to an extent those people are, are perhaps accepting that we are about to leave Europe, that Brexit is going to happen. Um, and they've to an extent made their peace with it, really. 
Lindsay, it's really good to talk to you. We'll let you get back to um, trying to work out what on earth is going on uh, up in Edinburgh. So before we get, go, I suppose we should try and touch on Brexit, which is the other end of uh, this whole debate. I was struck this week, there was a report from the Institute for Government who looked at the preparations that the government were making. And they'd gone to the civil service surveys and found that the Brexit department had the highest proportion of staff who thought they were doing something worthwhile with their lives. But they also had the highest levels of anxiety in the whole of Whitehall. <laughs> so they're the most sort of pumped up, but they're also yeah. the most... They're, they're right to be anxious as well, aren't they? They're sort yeah, of reaching this crunch point. There was a great quote uh, from a, a source in one of our stories uh, this week from a civil servant working on this. He said he wakes up in the morning and either he wakes up thinking, it's we're all doomed, it's, we're going to hell in a handcart, and the other morning he wakes up and thinks, it's all going to be fine. But I do get that sense. I think I think the emotions are running high. No one quite knows what's happened. There's an enormous amount of uncertainty, and then some sort of sort of fairly you know anxiety-inducing stories about the numbers of people that are required to work on this hugely complex uh, process of leaving the European Union. Plus the fact that we now discover there are likely to be seven extra bills, all of which could be hijacked by pressure groups and in their way through the Parliament in order to get us out of Europe. So. So um, I think there's a sort of slight sort of sense of battening down the hatches. So far, the Brexit conversation has been entirely one-sided. It's been us talking, mm. us being Britain, talking yeah. amongst ourselves about what it is we would like and whether or not we want to be in the single market or not. And mm. the customs union and financial services, passporting and all those other jargon things we've all become experts on. As soon as the triggering of Article 50 happens... We start having that conversation with 27 other countries. Well, we do, but it's not, it's, it's, they're not 27 equals. I mean, Germany is the largest net contributor. We're the second largest net contributor. I think, the, and I admit this as a Brexiteer, the difficulty is that if you were to say, let's have a deal done between Britain and Germany, could be done perfectly simply, particularly on the city, because Germany is terrified of the Eurozone being disrupted. The UK runs the Eurozone. The Eurozone is a giant debt machine. We handle 75% of that business. It's one of the world's largest capital markets for the Eurozone to function, businesses to borrow, to swap, to hedge. That has to be done out, uh, that has to be done somewhere. It's done out of London and there is no serious rival in, uh, in, on mainland Europe. So the Germans know that there is a deal to be done. I think the problem comes further down the line. Whereas if you do get a deal and then the French become difficult, that can probably be solved because of Germany's largest net contributor status and various other concessions and compromises on security and NATO. But then it has to go to the European Parliament. So I think that's why the government are preparing people for the possibility of hard Brexit, not because they necessarily want it. They're just preparing people for the possibility that it'll be very messy and chaotic by the time it gets to the to the Parliament. So that even if a good deal is constructed, it's still... People should be aware it still might uh, fall. So, Emma, you look like you're itching to tell Ian why he's wrong. No, I, 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 I don't think he's wholly wrong, but I think we should not underestimate the the, the way in which um, horse trading that quite possibly doesn't have an awful lot to do with our own negotiation with, with the 27 can get entangled in the negotiation. So it's true that, yes, Germany counts for an awful lot, but never underestimate the ability of a very pig-headed small nation to dig its heels over one particular issue which then cascades or has a sort of domino effect on on other considerations from other nations. I mean, Europe, European negotiations are unbelievably complex and messy and one never quite knows where the glitch is going to come or what the compromise is going to have to be, even if you have Germany on your side. And, and some would say that was the mistake 
David Cameron made in his previous negotiation was that he thought it was all about his relationship with Germany and a couple of the other big countries. In fact, what he needed to have done was to have forged a much better relationship with the European Commission because in the end, they sort of uh, crack heads together and, and oversee the negotiation. It sounds like a dysfunctional organisation that's <laughs> worth leaving. <laughs> with the leaving is, is the Thank problem. goodness we're leaving. And then you throw into the mix the Dutch election. We can't even send the letter because of the Dutch elections. Never mind the outcome yeah. of them. Dutch elections, French elections, German elections. And it's so many moving parts. So we're joined on the nine now by Bruno Waterfield, the Times correspondent in Brussels. Bruno, what's the mood there? How sure were people in Brussels that Article 50 would be triggered this week, straight after the bill cleared the Commons? Um, well, people had arranged press conferences. Um, so the President of the European Parliament had arranged a press conference for um, Thursday after a meeting of the sort of great and good MEPs in the European Parliament. Uh, Donald Tusk's office was certainly expecting it. And so was the European Commission. It means that they're almost certainly going to have to push back the date of a summit that had been penciled in for the uh, 6th of April. And the calendar's very tight because then you hit Easter, you hit the French uh, election. So that could push things back even into uh, May itself, which means a, a big delay for talks that are very, very, very tight. So I think there's a bit of frustration but also real concern about what is happening uh, in Britain uh, because of the uh, Scottish referendum threat. So let's, um, let's talk about Scotland as well then. We're told it's not just Spain, but Belgium, Italy, Greece, Cyprus, Slovakia, who would all have a problem with the idea of letting an independent Scotland into the EU because they fear it would fuel their own separative movements. How, how much thought is that has been given to that in Brussels? Is it, a, is it a big problem for Scotland, do you think? Oh, yes, it is. I mean, the, the, the orthodoxy... Um, in the European Union is, is, is very clear that breakaway secessionist, uh, secessionist movements um, or secessionist countries will not get any kind of special treatment. They would be treated as any other new country um, applying uh, to join the EU. Having said that, there is sympathy uh, for Scotland. This is the European Union um, uh, after all and in a, a hostile world where no one likes it very much. Anybody who's keen um, gets a gets an uh, gets a sympathetic uh, gets a sympathetic ear, um, and and last year uh, Nicholas Sturgeon was able to meet uh, Jean Claude Juncker. That was an unprecedented uh, meeting, but he he pretty much told her um, that there was nothing um, the EU could do to help treat Scotland as a special case. So as and when Theresa May finally gets around to writing this letter triggering Article 50 at some point over the next two and a bit weeks, because she needs to meet that end of March deadline, what happens then? All all the action comes to you in Brussels, does it? Uh, I think it's going to be, it's going to be, well, it'll be interesting to see how it works uh, out, but certainly for five or six weeks, um, that will be the case. We're expecting there to be a gap of around, uh, well, first of all, within 48 hours, um, they will send out um, to all the European capitals, it will be secret, um, the EU's attempt to draw up a divorce um, settlement. And then in two to three weeks, there'll be a summit of the 27 EU leaders without Theresa May to try and thrash out um, an agreement uh, on that. Within 24 hours, the Commission will come up with a negotiating mandate over the next few weeks after that. Um, Europe ministers will really get into the nitty-gritty and the do's and don'ts for Michel Barnier, um, the lead um, negotiator. So yes, after she, after she triggers Article 50, whether she does that for a speech in the Parliament or with a formal 
letter, there's going to be a period of five to six weeks while the EU um, ties it all down, uh, particularly the, the list of don'ts. Each country will have issues that they that are red lines for them, and the, uh, the EU's negotiating mandate, which will be very complicated to pull together, will have to reflect that. And, and how quickly will talk of you know no deal being possible? Once you've got 27 countries, they've all got different red lines and demands. How quickly would the conversation get on to there was just no deal to be done here? Do you think? Well, I think I think in the in the first phase, uh, the, the the unity between the 27 will be will be fine. They've had lots of time uh, to prepare. They've had months and months and months. You know, Michel Barnier has travelled around um, the European uh, capitals. So they know. Um, what um, they are dealing with. But as the negotiations go on um, over the summer and into the um, autumn, um, the, the divisions, differences of national interests, and indeed whether Britain, um, uh, whether Theresa May is able to stomach um, the divorce settlement really will come to the fore. And that's the moment, uh, probably in the autumn this year, that we might see a walkout on the British end or serious divisions arise on the EU side. Just uh, finally, Bruno, how prepared do you think Theresa May is for this? I mean, she's not entered these sorts of negotiations on this scale before. You know, there are lots of people around who think that David Cameron made a dog's breakfast of it when he tried it. Has she got any idea of how difficult it's going to be? I think she has. I mean, I I think there have been a lot of contacts um, at the level of of, of civil servants with Ollie Robbins travelling round and round, uh, round and round Europe. So I think they know the scale of what they face. But I think the thing that's really difficult, and it's, it's difficult for everybody, this will be a dynamic negotiation with thousands, hundreds of thousands um, of, of moving parts on very, 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 very difficult um, issues of, of, of profound uh, national interest um, for countries. So the capacity for it to all grind to a halt, a tiny grain of sand could mess up all the moving points. I mean, that, that, could, that can happen any time and I think it's that dynamic quality um, that is, is, is what makes um, everybody very very uneasy and now of course uh, Scotland is, 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 is potentially one of those uh, is potentially sand thrown into the moving machine. Well that's all we've got time for this week. Follow the latest news and analysis on both Scotland and Brexit obviously in the Times and at thetimes.co.uk where you can also sign up for my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device so it appears as if by magic every week. For now my thanks to Lindsay McIntosh in Edinburgh, Bruno Waterfield in Brussels and here in the studio in London from Ian Martin, Emma Tucker and me Matt Chorley. It's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.